Hey, all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Today, I'm excited to have a special guest with me, Mr. Kenji Lopez Alt, author of the Food Lab, creator on Serious Eats, and many other places. I can't wait to introduce you guys to Kenji. I'll be right back. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Hey all I want to welcome back Inkbird Products as a sponsor of the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Inkbird makes one of the best Wi-Fi 4 Pro barbecue thermometers that I've ever seen out there. The IBBQ4T is 100% rechargeable USB 4 Pro Wi-Fi enabled barbecue thermometer. And it usually sells for under $100. Check it out the link below for the Inkbird Wi-Fi IBBQ4T4 Pro Barbecue Thermometer. Welcome back, Inkbird Products. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, and I'm your host. And on today, I've got a really special guest. I've got Kenji Lopez-Alt, or J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, as he's, his full name is. And... Um, I'm sure if you don't know who he is, I don't know where you've been under a rock, but um, <laughs> he is the author of The Food Lab. He is from Serious Eats, has his own restaurant called The Worst Hall out in uh, San Francisco now. Welcome, Kenji. Just give me a little bit of history of who you are real quick, and then we'll have a great conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm Kenji Lopez. You can just call me Kenji. Um, I, yeah, as you said, I'm the, the chef at a restaurant. Um, it's actually San Mateo, a little south of San Francisco called Worst Hall. Um, I'm the author of uh, The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, which is a book as well as a column on SeriousEats.com. Um, what else do I do? I'm a, I'm a New York Times food columnist, uh, and I'm now officially a children's book author because my children's book, Every Night is Pizza Night, uh, is out September 1st of this year, 2020. I saw that. And uh, you, you do have a toddler, so I'm mm -hmm. sure that was a lot of your inspiration to see uh, if you could put something out there uh for for is it your daughter correct it's a daughter yeah yeah for yeah. her yeah written basically just for her so <laughs> yeah but now you can you know everybody else can kind of enjoy it as well because um i hope so yeah yeah great so i'm looking at your history um <clears throat> you really didn't study cooking in your early years you were you were <clears throat> went to college for architecture so what what got you involved in in cooking um, it was it was a summer job actually. You know, I I, I was a biology major um, when I started college, and um, I'd spent a couple summers um, and break period, you know, winter break periods working in biology labs. Um, and uh, I pretty quickly realized after, you know, after working a few months in in labs that lab work, which is what you basically do studying biology after you know after after school for a number of years, the lab work wasn't really. Uh, up my alley it was a little bit too slow paced for me um and so i kind of decided then that i, I, I was not going to continue pursuing my biology degree and i was going to switch majors um and so for the summer after that the summer after my sophomore year um i didn't really know what to do so i went around town looking for a job as a server a waiter um and i walked into a restaurant that needed a cook um it was actually called fire and ice not fire and water but fire and ice it's a it was like you know like a mongolian grill style place um, in Harvard Square, and um, I got a job as a prep cook there. Uh, and then eventually, after a couple of weeks, I got promoted to to Night of the Round Grill. So I was one of those guys in the center with the big, you know, with the big cast iron um, grill that would take your food and, and grill it for you and you know, 
throw throw asparagus tips in the air with my spatulas and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> so it was it was just a summer job, um, and I, I you know I loved it. I loved I loved everything about working in a kitchen. Um, everything from you know the day to day, the mundane tasks, you know, like peeling onions and chopping potatoes and all that stuff, and um, to the you know sort of, sort of to the adrenaline and the teamwork and the interfacing with customers um, and the hospitality elements of it. So. Um, so basically after that summer, um, you know, I switched to an architecture degree, which I um, graduated with. Um, but uh, basically after that summer, I continued working in restaurants, um, either part or full time through college and then went straight into them after college full time. Uh, you know, worked, worked for a number of years in restaurants before switching over to the recipe writing and publishing side of it. Now, did you did you ever attend any culinary classes or schools or anything like that? Is it strictly no, just, nope. just a hands-on experience? Yeah, yep, all on all on the job. So, I, you know, I worked in a huge variety of restaurants. You know, ranging from Mongolian Grill to a pizza place to I was an oyster shucker at an oyster bar. I worked at a charcuterie bar, um, Spanish restaurants, front. You know, some high, you know, more sort of high high end high end French and Italian places. Um, I, you know, I just, I've worked, I tried to work as many, as many different places as I could to, to get as much, you know, get, get as much knowledge as I could. And, and I read a ton. Um, you know, the, I was, I was also the, I was a chef at a fraternity house. It was, it was a co-ed fraternity house um, that was around 80% international students. Um, and so I got a lot of opportunities to talk with students about foods from their homes. Um, and, um, you know, my, what I did there was I, I tried for the entire two years that I was working as a fraternity, fraternity chef to never repeat the same meal. Um, and every Sunday, I would work with one of the students there um, to try and um, cook uh, dishes from their home country for, you know, for the rest of the house. So I, I got a lot of experience learning sort of firsthand what, um, you know, food from various cultures um, around the world, which I found um, invaluable. You know, because at the time, obviously, I was, I was, a, I was a, you know, just finished school and I was working as a line cook and I barely had any money. So traveling wasn't really... Right. Um, you know, in, in the equation for me. Um, so I felt myself, I felt that very lucky to, to have access to um, um, interactions with so many people from around the world um, to, to really sort of expand my, um, my repertoire of techniques and, and flavors and, and understanding of food. Yeah, well, I, when I was young, when I first started in restaurants too, I mean, I think I was 16. I started washing dishes and not too mm -hmm. long after that, I was able to move to a line cook and I worked at different restaurants. I worked in about for about 10 years and I realized that you really couldn't support a family in that business. Like <laughs> you said, when you're a line cook or something like that, it's kind of hard. You got to work two jobs to try to make ends meet. Yep. So yep. I kind of changed careers and went into banking, but it did spark my love of cooking and I never gave that up. I, I've cooked my entire life and mm -hmm. always you know look for different ways to cook so I can understand how you caught the bug, you know, especially, <laughs> you know, if it's something that you're really passionate about and that's what it sounds like to me is that you thought you were going to do something else, but you got passionate about something and, and you made it into a career, even though that wasn't the path you were aiming for. Yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> hit, hit that fork in the road and went down a different one, which is great. Yeah. You know, that, that's always sort of in my philosophy whenever there's any kind of, you know, career move or any kind of life decision. It's like, I, I never, I've never really thought too hard about um, predefining a career path for myself. Um, I what I you know my my sort of philosophy is like as long as I'm learning something new, um, and as long as I'm enjoying it, um, then you know it it doesn't really matter how much money I'm currently making at it as long as I you know as, as long as I'm making enough to at least survive. Um, because you know I, I've known for myself since you know even middle school or high school that I I do best at the things that I'm passionate about. 
Um, and so, you know, whenever I make a career move, I think to myself, all right, which one of these things am I more passionate about? You know, which, which, which fork on this, you know, which, which, which path down the, in this fork looks like the more exciting one and the one that I'm going to enjoy more. And generally the one I'm going to enjoy more is the one I'm going to do better at. Um, and so hopefully that leads to, you know, career success down the line, um, which luckily, you know, luckily it's worked out so far. Yeah, I think if we all did that, you know, like I said, I got into banking. It wasn't because I love banking, but it was more of a financial need. And it just kind of fell in my lap that I was able to move into it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I still was able to keep that passion going for for cooking. And this is kind of what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of taken my passion and, and you know love of cooking and, and turning it into something you know, down the road. You know, I get ready to retire. It'll still have some kind of income. I can, you know, still have uh, some, you know, something to do with it. But, uh, you know, banking will I can get rid of that. But uh, so <laughs> the influence of your dad was a geneticist. And so he mm -hmm. was he kind of gearing you towards your initial college, uh, you studying chemistry and all that or? Um, no, you know, my dad has never put pressure on me to be a scientist. My, my mom certainly put a lot of pressure on me to be a scientist. <laughs> um, you know, sci scientist, doctor or lawyer is what she wanted. Um, but um, no, my dad, you know, my dad actually has, ne has never really put pressure, pressure on and I have two sisters as well. Um, who are now both science, well, one is a vet and the other is a, is a scientist, um, ecologist, but, um, uh, you know, the, the science stuff is something that my, you know, my grandfather was a professor of organic chemistry. My father is a professor of genetics. Um, and so there's a lot of science sort of just in our house growing up. Um, and, um, you know, and because of that, I think I got a good grasp of how science works and what, you know, what, what labs are like and, and, and everything like that. Um, so, there was never any direct pressure from my dad to be a scientist, but, um, but certainly there was a lot of influence um, in, in terms of me, you know, in, enjoying and loving science growing up. Um, my, you know, my dad, when I just, when I, when I told my parents after I graduated from college, when I told my parents that I'm going to go work at a restaurant, like my mom was like deeply disappointed for, <laughs> deeply disappointed. But um, my dad was actually pretty excited about it, you know, because my dad loves food and he likes going out to eat. And so he, he thought it was really cool that he had a place that he could like bring his friends. He's like, yeah, there's my, my son working there. You know, <laughs> uh, so he thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> well, how much of that influenced you into, you know, making the, you know, writing the food lab, because you do a lot of, you know, explaining and, and experimenting in that book. So it's, yeah. um, you know, so you got the scientific method down. So you kind of took that, and put it into food, which not a lot of people have. It's, you know, usually recipes and, and this, that, or the other thing, but you do a lot of explaining of whys. And that's one of the things I like about it. And that's one of the reasons I like Meathead Goldwyn so much, right. you know, mm -hmm. is because it's the why and how. It's right. not just do it this way because I said so, you know. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, a, a big influence. You know, when, when I was working as a line cook, um, I always had questions, um, to the point where it like annoyed my, you know, annoyed my chefs and coworkers. But I always had questions about why we were doing things certain ways. And, um, and, and to me, there weren't that many, you know, there, there were some really good books out there. You know, there's like Carol McGee's on food and cooking that explains a lot of the science behind it, but there wasn't um, a ton of uh, writing out there that made it really applicable to, to cooking, you know, like it was always, it was always like sort of the science of food was a separate thing from the science, from the, from, from actual cooking. Um, and so when I started writing, the food lab, really, I was writing it sort of for myself. It's like, I have all these questions I want answered. I, I want to know, like, why does the eggshell sometimes stick to the egg when you boil it? And sometimes it doesn't. And I couldn't find any satisfactory answers. So, um, so I just did what came naturally to me, which was like, all right, well, let's test it. And let's test all the, let's design some experiments and try and really figure out why. Um, and that became the first food lab column, which I wrote for Serious Eats. And 
Yeah, you know, it was like a thing that I was just doing for myself. I didn't really know if people were going to find it interesting or read it because um, it was like, you know, 3,000 words on boiling an egg is, is a lot of words on just how to boil <laughs> yeah. an egg. Um, but, you know, luckily it turns out that people were interested in it also. So um, it just kind of grew from there. The whole, you know, the food lab thing grew from there. Um, and, and it turned out to be sort of the ideal job for me. You know, it let me combine my passion for cooking with my passion for science and, and my love of science. And it, it was it was like the ideal job, you know, for the for the... I don't remember how many years I was doing it full-time for series. something like six or seven years full-time for series. basically from like the time I started uh, 2010 or so until my daughter was born 2017. Um, so seven years. Um, I was, my whole, my full-time job was just exploring these cooking questions that I was going, I would have liked, you know, if, if I, if I had a different job, if I had a, if I had a day job where I was working in an office nine to five, I would have come home and done the same kinds of stuff from right. 5 p.m. until I went to bed. You just got so, paid to do it. Yeah. It so. just turns out I got paid to do it and I didn't and I didn't have to have another job. So it was it was it was great. So how did you make the move from working in restaurants to you, you jumped to Cooks Illustrated mm -hmm. before you went to Serious Seats? So how how did that kind of come about from because you know I worked in restaurants and I didn't see people coming in and going, hey line cook, come here, let's let's go to work for <laughs> for, for a magazine or something. So so how did that kind of work out? Um, you know, it, it, I'd spent, I'd, by, the, by the time I switched from restaurants to magazines, so my first magazine job was um, at Cook's Illustrated, which is based in Boston, um, based in Brookline, Massachusetts. Um, I had been working in restaurants full time for, I think, like five or six years, something like that. And, um, and you know, I, wor I worked with a number of chefs and, and, and uh, Barbara, Barbara, Barbara Lynch and Ken Oranger, who both have multiple restaurants. Um, and so I got lots of opportunities to work at very diff different kinds of places. But um, you know, I, I think like you, when you when you switched careers, I was starting to feel realizing I was I was starting to burn out a little bit, and that this was not a viable career option for my entire life. Um, and moreover, it was like you know, I felt that up until that point, like every time I started working at a new restaurant, it was it was like you know, I was learning brand new skills, brand new techniques. Um, and you know, by by the time by that time, um, I had worked at all of Ken Orange's restaurants. And I was still working with them. I was like the headline cook at Clio. And so really I was in much more of a sort of teaching position than a learning position. Um, like I knew every, every technique and dish at the restaurant back to front. And so I felt like I wasn't really learning too much. And so I knew at some point soon, I was going to have to either make the transition to a completely different type of restaurant so I can be, start learning again um, or switch to something different. And it seemed like, you know, my, my friend then basically just showed me a job listing for Cooks Illustrated, which I'd never heard of at the time. I hadn't heard of the magazine. But, um, you know, the job listing said, you know, looking for recipe testers. And I looked at the magazine, I was like, oh, they do some, they do some, a little bit of science and they do some food. Maybe it's worth looking into um, seeing what the other side of this profession is like, you know, the writing, the, the writing and recipe development side of it. Um, and, um, and yeah, so that's, that's basically how I made the transi transition. It was just, I just stumbled upon a, an, a job listing um, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. You know, I, I really enjoyed working at Cooks Illustrated um, because, you know, it did give me the opportunity to explore food science and do some testing. Um, it gave me a more steady paycheck, better hours. Um, you know, the, the, pressure, the pressure probably was a lot less too. The pressure was less. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there you're, it's weird if you stayed past 5 PM there, you know, it was a nine to five right. place. Um, it was, it was weird if you spent extra hours, whereas at a restaurant, it's like, if you leave at the time you're supposed to leave, um, people, yeah. think you're, people think you're slacking, um, at least back in the day. I don't know, you know, it's maybe not quite that way anymore, but um, at the time it was. Uh, you know, the, the, the only issue I had with Cooks Illustrated was that, you know, they, the, audience, the Cooks Illustrated audience at the time was 
um, just skewed sort of older and sort of had, you know, it was generally older people from the older people from the from the Midwest who were very into American food, you know, which is which is mm -hmm. great, but it but it didn't give many opportunities to explore sort of other food from other cultures, um, which they do more of these days, um, be, uh, you know, as I think, um, as I think everybody in the in the US, their, their palates are expanding more and more with the, you know, with the internet and the availability of, of ingredients and, and, and knowledge of techniques and stuff. Um, but, you know, so, so for me, the, the types of food we were cooking, it's like, it was a whole lot of roast chicken and, and mashed potatoes, you know? <laughs> um, and so I got a little bit bored of that eventually, um, which is why, you know, transitioning over to Serious Eats, which was completely web-based and therefore doesn't, has an audience that, you know, so in in a print publication, you have a you have a built-in audience, right? You got you have a fixed audience, a fixed subscriber base that doesn't change, and so all of the articles have to cater to your subscriber base. Right. Um, whereas when you're writing online, you don't have a fixed audience. You know, like one one set of people might read one type of article, but another set of people are going to read a different type type of article, which means that you're much less constricted. So you know, as long as you're putting out good quality content, um, your audience is kind of going to find you. You know, which is which is something that's really appealing. Um, uh, but, you know, both writing and and now you know now I do video and stuff online and that and all it's all, all sort of the same thing. It's like I can, whatever what, as long as it's interesting to me, I can write about it and be guaranteed that somebody is going to find it. You know, um, so I don't really have to cater. I can I can write what I'm interested in rather than what uh, the demographic of my subscriber base is interested in. Well, and the benefit of that is that you get to pour your passion into it, and people, especially you know, with the videos now, and, and we'll talk about your YouTube channel in a minute, but um, when you, you know, they can see your passion, they can feel your passion. If it's something you really, they can tell you're really getting into it. It's not like you said, <laughs> a roasted chicken. You know, how many times can you write an article about a roasted chicken right. or well. you know, pot, pot roast or meatloaf? You know, it's like, yeah, according to Cook's Illustrated, five to six times <laughs> a year. probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But when you get passionate about something, when you're experimenting, you're trying new things, and you're trying to show people, I mean, the excitement kind of, you know, people will get, a, 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 you know, attached to that mm -hmm. and, and follow you. And then that's when you got people that'll watch anything you do. And, and I want to talk about that in a little bit on your YouTube channel. But so, so when you got into Serious Eats, that was a little bit different than Cook's Illustrated and you got felt a little bit more freedom. And yeah, that's when you started writing the food lab when you mm -hmm. were at Serious Eats. Yeah, I, you know, I felt I felt more freedom both in terms of the topics I could do, um, as well as as well as the tone. You know, it's like like Cook, Cooks Illustrated has a very specific tone to its articles, and I have, no matter who writes it, it gets edited into this sort of Cooks Illustrated voice. You know, um, right. whereas when you're writing online, um, you you can really you're much more free as as to what you do, and and in fact, people you know people these days people really connect with you know authenticity. You know, so so it's like. You, you don't have to make your voice sound like a specific thing. You can just be yourself um, and, and people appreciate that, you know? Um, so that, you know, so the, the online on Serious Seats, that's where I really sort of developed my writing voice, you know, the, the which, is, which is something that, um, you know, it's, it, many writers will tell you that it's the most difficult thing to do is finding, finding your voice, like what makes your writing sound like you and, and how do you write so that it sounds authentically like what's in your head, you know? Um, and so that, that was, that was a great opportunity for me that I could, you know, I was writing so much. I was writing like three to seven articles a week, just like the sheer volume of writing, um, which is, which is still, you know, writers will tell you this, but the best way to get good at writing and the best way to find your voice is just do it a lot. Yeah, do it um, a lot. <laughs> just, I mean, just like anything, you just do it a lot. Um, and that's how you, that's sort of how you find your voice. And so, um, with, with serious seats, I was writing and cooking and testing 
you know, I didn't have a kid at the time. Both my wife and I were really sort of career focused um, for the, you know, early on in our marriage for the, you know, until we, we didn't have our daughter until eight years after we got married. Um, it was because we were both so really focused, focusing on building our careers. Um, and so basically, you know, like 9 a.m. till 4 a.m. Um, every day, I was testing, cooking, writing, et cetera, you know, so I, I, I would work on serious seat stuff from nine till nine till 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And then I would work on my book until, you know, my book was mostly written like from, from midnight to 4 a.m., my, my first book. <laughs> Um, which these days I cannot do because I have a daughter. So, um, so, my, so that's why my second book is much is coming out much more slowly and much more deliberately than the first one. But, um, but yeah, you know, I loved it. Those, those years, it's just like they went so fast because I was just doing what I love doing, and I was doing it basically all the time, nonstop. Um, and and I don't know. That's how you. That's how you get good at something. Just do it a lot. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And if you're really passionate about it, like you said, it doesn't feel like work to you. It's something you love right. to do. So exactly. Um, and you know, everybody wants to do that. That's for sure. So what, um, you know, I, I talk about sous vide and barbecue a lot and from what mm -hmm. I do and I, I kind of discovered sous vide about two and a half, three years ago, just kind of stumbled into it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I saw a lot of your articles on serious eats about it. And, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm kind of like you when, when I discover something or I, I find something I, I like, I throw myself into it. And, right. um, and I, I try to read everything I can learn as much as I can. And then I like to show other people what I learned and what I found out. Mm -hmm. When, when did you start working with CV? Did you do that in the restaurants or was that something you kind of stumbled on at serious eats and started playing around with there? Yeah. So re I started doing it first, started doing it um, in restaurants. Um, so uh, probably around, I don't know, 2003 or so was the first time I had heard of or seen sous vide. Um, and, and starting then we started using it more and more, um, more and more in restaurants. Um, and then in uh, two, late 2006, uh, when I was at Cook's Illustrated, um, this was, you know, just after I'd finished working in restaurants in uh, late 2006, I, um, um, my first recipe assignment at Cook's Illustrated was to write a recipe on um, on cooking steak, um, and so you know at that time, um, you, you know you're I'm sure you're familiar now with the thing called the reverse sear, which is where you start a right. steak in a low oven and finish yeah. it over high heat. Um, at that time, um, there were you know. Nobody at Cook's Illustrated had ever heard of it. I had never heard of it. Um, nobody had really seen it at all. Um, you know, after that article came out, Meathead, Meathead Goldwyn from Amazing Ribs later told me, oh, yeah, there was like this guy, Chris Finney, who was doing it on, um, on writing about it on barbecue forums, like in the early 2000, 2003, 2004, something like that. Um, uh, but at Cook's, when I was at Cook's Illustrated, my goal was basically like, all right, here, we're doing this thing called sous vide at restaurants, but the devices cost... 1500 bucks, $2,000. <laughs> right. um, they produce really great results. How do we mimic that for home cook? Um, and so that's how, that's how um, I came up with, um, you know, that, that technique, the, the, which later, which is now called the reverse sear, but, but it was basically an attempt to imitate sous vide for home cooks. Um, and then that, that article was published, it became very popular. And, you know, in these days now you can get a sous vide device for 79 bucks, 80 bucks. Um, and, uh, you know, w when I started writing for, uh, for, Serious Eats um, around 2009 or 2010, I think one of my first articles there was a sort of update on that technique, which we called, you know, beer cooler sous vide, where um, without, you don't use, you don't need a special device. You just fill up a big beer cooler, a big cooler with hot water at a precise temperature. And then it's, it, it holds that temperature long enough to cook something like a steak or a chicken breast. You, you won't be able to do, you won't be able to do like 48 hour short ribs yeah. in there, but you right. can do a steak or a chicken that takes like 45 minutes to cook. Um, 
beer cooler sous vide. Uh, so yeah, you know, sous vide has gone through a number of iterations. Um, these days, like at my restaurant, when we first opened the restaurant, we used sous vide a bunch for our sausages, um, also for slow cooking bacon, things like that. Um, but now we've, we spent the money to buy um, a couple of CVAP ovens, which are essentially, you know, they can accomplish a very similar goal, but um, you know, they're, they're, they're expensive ovens that, that hold precise humidity levels and precise, precise temperatures inside so that you don't have to use the plastic bags. You don't have to worry about filling up the, the water bath and maintaining the water level, et cetera. So now, you know, like it's, we're, we're a sausage hall, a beer, a beer garden. So all of our sausages are cooked um, in a CVAP oven to 135 degrees Fahrenheit with, um, with, with uh, steam injected. Uh, so that they stay really nice and juicy and they basically stay in there through service and then when you place an order that comes out of the oven gets finished on a flat top to crisp up the crisp up and brown the exterior so you know a, a sausage that would normally take say 12 to 15 minutes to cook um from raw um we can serve in within three to four minutes and it actually comes out much juicier than it would be if you were to just cook it in, in an oven or, or the whole way on a stovetop um yeah sous, I mean, sous vide and cvaps they're they're all they're all great, <laughs> for, yeah, especially I mean, for that, consistency that, and, and, and making things foolproof. Yeah, and that's the precise temperature thing that I, I try to explain to people because, you know, especially when they're new and they're, they're just trying to figure out what's, what sous vide is. And, you know, well, it cooks a great steak. Well, it does a lot more because it's precise temperature cooking. And I sous vide mm -hmm. sausages all the time mm -hmm. for that reason. Like you said, you could cook it to a precise temperature all the way through and then throw it on the flat top or in a pan to crisp it up. And then mm -hmm. it's still juicy. It didn't overcook. It didn't lose all the moisture yeah. because you were letting it, you know, all the uh, moisture that was in the sausage evaporate out. Yeah. So, yeah. And it lets you hold it until you're ready to eat it. You know, so right. it's like it, it, with, when you cook a sausage the normal <laughs> way over on a grill or in the oven or whatever, um, you have to be ready to eat it when it's done cooking. Whereas with sous vide, it can sit at that temperature for hours with um and and still be juicy and then when you're ready to eat it all you have to do is crisp up the outside and, and it's ready to go one of the things i love to do and that's where it comes into play with doing it with with barbecue is doing like a, a brisket or something and making it medium rare in the sous vide and then throwing it on mm -hmm. the smoker and getting some smoke to in it and that, that's kind of what i explain to people is i, I kind of try to make things that you can't make any other way Right. With either either the two different either the the methods you know like with smoking or sous vide you, if you combine the two you can make something you can't make with either one right, of those right, right. You know, yeah like you can, you can take a tough cut of meat like um like a pork shoulder right. or, or a brisket and and cook it over the course of a few days and so that it'll stay medium rare and nice and pink and juicy but all the connective tissue will also break down so it's, it's something that you yeah. like literally can't do without a without right. a precise you know with, without a precise cooking temperature and the method has grown so fast because of like you said when you first started, you know, doing it in the restaurants, the, the devices cost 1500 bucks or more, you know, nowadays you can get one for, you know, 50, 60 bucks, you know, cheaper ones, but mm -hmm. a good one's still a hundred bucks, but still, you know, it's, you know, there's so much information out there now and, and the prices have come down a lot and it's people have gotten uh, really uh, into it. And just like you were mentioning, I think with all the, advent of all these cooking shows and and it's happened in barbecue and outdoor cooking as well um with all these uh the cable tv shows and the, the cooking contests and all these uh you know celebrity chefs and stuff people are getting more and more interested in cooking in their own house mm -hmm. you know so i think that's where people like you and me people are looking to your book because they're doing more cooking at home they're not going out and they're not making just meatloaf or whatever anymore they're, they're trying to expand their mind so they look at 
you know, like your book and, and serious eats and all that, trying to find new things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And especially now, you know, because of the, the, the pandemic people, everybody's cooking, everybody's stuck at home. So oh, yeah. a lot more people are cooking now. Yeah. I mean, right now I've had a couple, um, you know, actually yesterday I had one of the guys who owns a charcoal producing company and, you know, and I've had others, you know, the grill representative companies that they're, they can't keep supply of their products because people are buying it up, you know, yeah. it's because they're staying home more, they're cooking at home. But um, it's just, it's not just the um, supply chain that's drying up. It's the people are buying a lot more of this stuff because right. they can't go anywhere. So let's talk about that. So you got, you started Worst Hall. You had some partners that kind of came to you and said, hey, we got this idea for a restaurant and mm-hmm. we'd like you to be involved. Is that kind of how that happened? Or Yeah, ba- basically. Um, so initially it was going to be just a sort of consulting thing, which I've, you know, I'd done with restaurants in the past. Um, uh, but for some reason this time, like when it, you know, Eater pick Eater wrote a story about the restaurant. And when they wrote the story, they said the headline line was like, Kenji Lopez all is opening up a restaurant. <laughs> um, and I was like, uh, <laughs> All right, I guess maybe I, you know, like now, now that people think this is my restaurant, I need to be a little bit more involved in it. Um, and uh, you know, so we talked about it, and and I, I became the full a full chef partner there. Um, so, um, so yeah, you know, it was the the idea to do a beer hall. Um, it wasn't set in stone when I joined, but that was my partner Adam's Adam's idea because you know he he owned a bar and he's a he has a good knowledge of um, beer and wine and a lot of connection. You know, there's a lot of local breweries that he has connections with. Um, already, you know, biz- business connections with already. So um, it seemed natural to do something sort of, sort of beer focused. Um, and, you know, down where, where we live in San Mateo, um, there, there's a lot of great dining, um, particularly, you know, like in um, regional Chinese and Japanese and, and some other, some other cuisines, but there aren't, there aren't that many sort of um, very family friendly, um, you know, places that are geared specifically towards families. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, we looked at the success of a lot of sort of beer halls around the country and, and, and also in the Bay Area and, and thought, well, this is a good thing. You know, like people love beer in the Bay Area. Um, we need we need like a really family friendly dining place, like a place where kids can be loud and run around and nobody cares. Um, and so that's sort of where we started and, and we're basically where we ended up, you know. Um, it's, it's gone through a few iterations. It's like, you know, early on, we were much, we were a little bit more focused on um, like a a full dining experience and because we realized you know like a lot of people were coming in for like dates and special occasions and stuff which is not really how we thought people would be we thought we thought it'd be a much more casual place um but early on people were coming in for dates and things like that or people were coming driving down from the city to try the place because it was my restaurant etc um but um we've been slowly pushing it into the much more casual direction. And, and actually now that, you know, when the pandemic hit and shelter in place started and we, we closed down for a few months, um, when we reopened, we completely, um, we completely sort of reimagined it. So changed the menu, um, you know, part, partly because we, we want to take it in this direction. We want it to be a much more sort of fun, casual place. Um, but also partly out of necessity because we can no we can no longer, um, you know, the, the types of food, the type of food we were producing before required a full prep team and a full, a full, densely staffed line at night, you know, five to six line cooks on a Friday or Saturday night. Um, and we just can't 
keep that staff anymore because of the, because of the safety issues, the, the spacing issues. Um, so we had to redesign everything so that it could be um, prepared with crew kept, you know, six feet apart and with and, and a two to three person line at night mm -hmm. next while still being able to keep up. So, um, so our menu now is a lot more smaller. It's a lot smaller um, and a lot more sort of tightly focused on the, the core products that people have been coming to us for. So, you know, the, the sausages, are, which are still completely made in-house, um, our, our smash burger and our, um, our hot fried chicken sandwich, which is like, you know, three things people like to eat with beer. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that kind of explains a lot, you know, some of the stuff I wanted to cover about that. So when you got back into the restaurant <clears throat> side of it though, how, you know, cause you had been out of it for a while, you were just, mm -hmm. you know, working for serious eats and, and the, uh, and, and the other magazine stuff. How, how was that to, uh, to step back into the restaurant? Um, you know, it was exciting in, in many ways because it was the first restaurant where it was like you know, my restaurant um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't just like a cook there or I wasn't just the consultant there. It was like my restaurant. So that was pretty exciting um, and, uh, and enjoyable. But, you know, the, 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 the downside of it, of course, is the, is the hours and restaurants are terrible and, um, and very demanding and unpredictable because things are always going wrong and you always have to be ready to to fix any problem that comes up. Um, and so, you know, it took a lot of time away from my family. My, my daughter was pretty young at the time and it took, ended up taking away a lot more time from my family than I ever intended it to. Um, and so, um, you know, after, after a while I started, you know, having to very consciously make the decision. All right. Like I need to, I need to be able to be a little bit more hands-off with the restaurant. I need to trust my cooks more. I need to trust my partners more. Um, to make some decisions and and trust that um, even without me there all the time, it's going to be okay. Um, and of course, it turns out it it is. You know, it's like yeah. people it's step just, up. It's you just hire, hard. To, it's hard to do. And, yeah, it's hard yeah. to do though when your name's on it. You yeah, know. yeah. But you know, you you hire good people. You make sure that everyone's in alignment um, as far as vision for the place goes, and everyone has an eye for quality. And then um, you know, people step up and to, and problems they don't take care of themselves, but people step up to take care of the problems. Um, even when you're not there all the time, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do to learn to, to be hands off um, when something's your project. You know? Well, I'm going to share a screen here mm -hmm. and it's going to be your website. So I want people to kind of see this oh. is your, your main website. So they can pretty much find anything you're doing um, yes. from, from this website right here, KenjiLopezAlt.com. Mm -hmm. So you got your, you know, your books, um, the newsletter, you get, you have a newsletter. It's what I guess it tells people exactly what you're going to be doing next and, yep. um, uh, your books. And like you were saying, you got every night is pizza night and that's available on Amazon pretty much anywhere you get books. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah there, there's, there's links to where you can buy my books. Um, they are, yeah, they are available on Amazon. Um, I'm act I actually am pushing people to buy it from, bookshop.org um so bookshop.org slash shop slash kenji lopez alt um if you buy it from there um 10 of the sale goes to independent bookshops around the country um and then another 10 of the sales um goes towards um uh covid disaster relief meals so it goes towards feeding people who have been um uh put in put you know put in trouble by the by the uh, pandemic well, that's good. You got some actually some examples of some of the pages of the food lab too. So that's yeah, yeah. That's, and that's and good. on my website, you can see both pages from inside my kids book and from the food lab. So well, that's it. one thing I want to talk about too, because I have my own YouTube channel. I have, I started mm -hmm. it kind of after I, I kind of started what I'm doing 
on a Facebook group. And that's kind of how I started. So I want to put this Facebook group together talking about barbecue and sous vide and see how in that grew pretty quick. Then I said, well, you know what I'll, Nobody's really doing that on YouTube. So let me kind of do that on YouTube. And that kind of grew. And, and it's right. like kind of, you know, just kind of went from one thing or another than the podcast. I said, well, I might as well do a podcast. So, um, so you, you, you had, a, uh, you've had this YouTube channel for a while. Um, and, you really didn't do a whole lot. You would put post up some stuff every once in a while here and there uh, back when you were with serious eats and all that. But mm-hmm. lately with this pandemic, it looks like you're, you're getting a lot more active on, on your videos on YouTube and they're, they're really popular. So yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, how, how do you like doing those? I mean, since you're used to doing your writing, you know, you really weren't a video person, you know, before. So yeah, you know, I'm really, I'm really enjoying them. So, you know, actually, so as you said, I had, I had a YouTube channel for, I've had a YouTube channel for like seven or eight years, something like that. Um, and I never really used to use it much. Um, but sometime like four or five years ago, I, you know, I just come back from a vacation where I had been like snorkeling and I had a GoPro on my desk and I was about to cook something at home. So I was like, Oh, maybe I'll just like try sticking this GoPro on my head and see what happens um when i cook with it uh see how it looks and so i did that and then i stuck the video up um and it got you know it got a few views i didn't really pay much attention to it and then over the next few years i did that a few times a year just every once in a while i would stick a gopro to my head and cook something and then um yeah and then back this february i was looking at my youtube channel because i was getting lots of notifications and i was like oh man like one of these videos like i'm just making a grilled cheese and it has like four million views (laughs) or something like that like something crazy so I was like, I guess people do like this format. Um, and so I got a, a slightly better GoPro <laughs> because the old videos, they, you know, they're, they're much shakier than the new ones and the lighting's not great. So I, I, got, I got whatever, you know, like a GoPro Hero 8, which is their newest one. And um, I started just recording some more um, videos of myself shooting. And then I was like, all right, well, people like the silent ones. I wonder if they'll like um, a little bit more explanation as to what I'm doing. Um, and so I started experimenting with that also. So basically just like, cooking what I was going to cook for my family anyway and recording it and sort of explaining what I was doing as I was, as I was doing it. Um, and people seem to like that. So it, you know, it's great because it, it's easy for me to do. Um, I don't really have to plan the videos in advance much. Um, I basically just, whatever I want to cook, I cook it and I record it and I, uh, and I don't make many edits either. You know, that's sort of, sort of part of my philosophy is like, I want people to see everything and like, I don't, I think of it sort of as those old, um, you know, like Food Network 1.0 or old PBS cooking shows where it was one 30 minute take um, with no, no edits, no, no magic of television. Now here we pull out like the fully cooked chicken from the oven. It's perfectly done. It's like a real, you know, like a real old school cooking show. Right. Um, and so that's how I think of it. It's like no edits, one take. Um, if I make a mistake, I just roll with it. I explain what the mistake was, how I'm going to fix it. Um, and I think people really appreciate that. Like seeing, all right, like here's, a professional who's really cooking at home and and um you know i think people make a make us at least the people who like following it make a sort of strong connection with that um to see that um you know even professionals make mistakes from time to time and it's and it's really okay to make mistakes at home as long as you know how to deal with them um as they arise uh so it's working out well you know for, for me it's like as soon as it becomes a lot of work i'm probably going to stop doing it <laughs> uh, but for now it's not you know for now it's it's pretty it's nice and easy and relaxed um well, that's the thing with YouTube. It's not like, you know, this is not your main income. It's not a job. You're just doing it when you, you know, get the uh, urge you know, and you're putting them up, you're putting them up on a regular basis now. But and some yeah. of the things that, that are some of your more popular videos are stuff that like, you know, 
your early morning breakfast quesadilla. I mean, it's not very hard, but you got over yeah. a million, <laughs> got over a million views on that. Your late night, you know, your burgers and, and sandwiches, people, you know, you're getting over 300,000 views on just something yeah. you whipped up, you know, for a snack. I mean, so people like what you're doing. It's obvious or they wouldn't be watching and, and, and uh, coming back, you know, yeah. and, and watching your stuff. So it's not like you have to, like you said, you don't have to put on airs. You don't have to make sure it's perfect. I mean, they're, they're, they're there to watch you cook in your kitchen the way you cook. So. <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, and then the, the nice thing about it is, you know, the nice thing about working on YouTube um, online, you know, same as, same as serious eats. It's like, I can do what I want to do. And if people like it, um, great, you know, people can come and watch it if they like it and that's great. Um, and if they don't like it, there's like a million other YouTube channels out there, you know? So it's like, I don't <laughs> have to cater to my audience. I can just do what I want to do. And it's, and it's like, if you like it, cool. If you don't, then go find something else that you do like them. You know, it's like, I'm not yeah. making the show for you specifically. I'm making this, um, because I enjoy making it. One of the first things I learned was don't take the uh, negative comments seriously because a lot of people go on, you know, YouTube or whatever, <clears throat> Facebook just to bully people or try to, yeah. you, know, you know, so I, you know, and, and some guys, some people can't, they get, they take, you know, every negative comment personally. And it's like, you got to <laughs> understand there's some people out there, no matter what you do, they're going to come up with some kind of negative comment because yeah, that's what course. they live for the trolls. So, yeah. but um, you know, if you're getting all these views and you're getting people subscribed to your channel and um, you know, you get plenty of, you know, it's like Helen, I talked about this with Helen, you know, cause you know, she really started getting some stupid people just saying stupid things. And it's like, Helen, just don't worry about those people. Right. <laughs> you're always going to have them. So just, you know, move on. Cause you got plenty of people that love what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and as someone who for years I was, you know, I was the managing editor at serious eats um, and Serious Eats, you know, one of our important goals was to have a community that um, was sort of supported and supportive and not toxic because there's so many toxic communities online. Um, and that requires, you know, to, to do that, it's, it does require sort of a lot of work. Um, you have to constantly monitor comments. You have to make sure people are being nice to each other. Um, and, you know, and that's something that I also want on my YouTube channel. Like I want people to be able to go into the comments and um, ask questions or find answers to things without having to read through a whole bunch of toxic junk oh, yeah. that's going to ruin their day. Um, and so, you know, so I have a base, I have a pretty zero tolerance policy. Like if you're, if you're, if you're a jerk in my comments, then like your comments getting are going to get deleted and you're just going to be blocked from the channel and that's it. It's yeah. like, I don't, um, you know, I, I, I believe in, 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 in the, in the, in the, in the second amendment and free speech as far as it, of, um, as far as you know, petitioning the government and, and the, the true meaning of the Second Amendment, but I don't believe in free speech on online platforms because if you if, if you let the trolls take control, they will, um, yeah. and then your entire comment section becomes useless. Yeah, I had that when I first started my Facebook group. That's the first you know uh, rule I put into place. If you are here just to be nasty to somebody else or complain or tell somebody their food looks like garbage, you can leave you yeah. know, or be moved because, you know, and I don't take any, anybody nasty comments on YouTube or anything. I just get rid of it you know, and I'll block them and, you know, I'll just move along. Cause you know what, this is my channel. This is my Facebook group. I make the rules. You don't. <laughs> so, right. Right. You know, if you're here just to, <laughs> you know, get everybody, you know, ticked off and think you're, you know, you're some kind of, um, you know, bully and then forget about it. You're gone. So, but yeah, great. I mean, I've I watched a lot of your videos and, and I just like, you know, 
because because you do it a little different than a lot of them. You know, you got the GoPro, so you mm-hmm. you know your point you know point of view right there. You're, you're they're watching you, you know, look down at your pan while you're cooking, which a lot of people don't do it that way. So mm-hmm. it's a uh, and but you you're very informative and, and you explain what you're doing the whole time because. I guess that comes from your writing, you know, history, you know, because because you're always writing and explaining how to cook stuff. So it, it's natural for you to, you know, just talk it through while you're while you're. Yeah, doing video. you know, part of, part of it is the writing. It's also a lot of it came from um, from my 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 first book tour, um, you know, because up up until then I, I I'm I'm still you know I'm still sort of scared of public speaking, um, and early on in like my early on in my book tour when I was talking to big groups or teaching classes and stuff like. You could easily tell how nervous I was. Like I would, I would stutter and stammer and and act nervous. Uh, but just like anything else, it's just the more you do it, the better you get at it. So you know, so in my book tour, it's like I'm give I'm talking at like three to four events a week for a few months, uh, and you just sort of learn how to start talking uh, <laughs> while you're cooking, and and especially when it's something when it's something I know about. You know, it's like I've been cooking for twenty years professionally, so it's I I know what I'm doing, uh, and as I'm doing it, I know why I'm doing it. So all I have to do is sort of is explain what the stream of consciousness, consciousness that's in my head and explain what I'm doing it as I'm doing it. And, uh, um, you know, teaching classes uh, helps you sort of gain that skill, um, which now translates pretty well to YouTube. Exactly. If you go, you know, on YouTube, I think you can find um, videos that I did when I was at Cook's Illustrated, probably from like 2007 or eight, where um, when Cook's Illustrated was just starting its its, um, video program. um, um, So you can see, you can see um, videos of me from when I was like in my, mid 20s trying to trying to talk about how I was cooking and it's so so awkward um, especially compared to now um, so yeah if you want to if you want to laugh just look for old Kenji cooking videos on Cooks Illustrated yeah I mean and that's fun to do because I, I've even had other you know YouTube guys on like uh, Malcolm Reed he's a big barbecue uh-huh. uh, guy in you know he started his YouTube channel like 12 years ago and you know one of the things he says he likes to go back to those videos from 12 years ago and just shake his head because yeah <laughs> his his whole style has changed in that time that he's now he's very you know uh, his wife does all the camera work and editing and puts everything together for him so if you look at a new video compared to what he did back then mm-hmm. it's totally 100 percent different but you know, I think we all go through that. The more we do something, you know, me too. I, I look at some of my earlier videos and I go, Ooh, but you keep them out there because they, you know, the, the people can see your growth as well. So, so what's come, what's coming up next for Kenji now? So you, you, you said you hit on, you're, you're doing another book. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing a book about cooking in a walk. Um, so if, you, if you've seen my YouTube channel recently, you'll see there's a lot of stuff about cooking in a walk on it, but um, my, my next book, it should be out uh, fall of next year, fall of 2021 hopefully. Uh, it's going to be a big book on cooking in a walk. So not a Chinese cookbook, not any sort of specific um, Asian country, but just everything you can do uh, in a walk. And it's going to be similar to the food lab in the sense that it's really going to stress sort of technique um, and science. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've, it's, it's the most versatile pan in my kitchen. It's the one that I use the most often. Um, and I think, uh, um, you know, once people learn how to use it well and, and learn the technique and the technique and some of the science behind it, um, it's, I, I'm hoping it'll become the most useful pan in everyone's kitchen. Um, you know, or at least be, at least people who enjoy the type of type of food that I do. <laughs> I've watched some of your, your YouTube videos and I've watched some where you sh- show different setups for the walk, like the mm-hmm. indoor and the outdoor and the different types of, um, 
setups that you can do to just just to be able to cook in the wok so yeah um, yeah you know because a lot of people have this impression that in order to cook with a wok you need like this powerful restaurant burner um but you know most people in in china don't have powerful restaurant burners in their own homes you know and they're still doing stir frying and, and cooking at home so you know th there are certain things certain restaurant style dishes where those elements help but you definitely don't need them and so a lot yeah a lot of um what i'm trying to do is translating um, walk techniques for, for home cooks, especially, you know, particularly for an American audience, um, because there's, there's a lot of stuff out there about cooking, about, about cooking in walks already. Um, but, um, not that much that has very specifically been geared towards, um, an American home cook, you know, with the equipment and the ingredients that we can get here. Anything else you got coming up? I mean, are you just continually doing the YouTube videos and you got worst tall, you're open again and, but it's all outdoor seating. So. Right. Exactly. Open for outdoor only. Um, no, as far as other things, you know, I have plans on some more kids books in the future. Um, after I finish this walk book, I'm probably going to take a break from cookbook writing for a while, just because it's <laughs> sort of occupied my life for the last 10 years. Um, so I want to, I want to try some new things out. Um, but um, yeah, I probably, you know, in the future, I would, I would say, look for, I'm going to be looking forward to writing some more kids book, doing some more video stuff. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe trying something other than cooking for a little while too. Who knows? Do you still contribute to serious eats uh, at all? Or, I mean, I do. It... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, you know, not obviously not the three to five times a week I was doing before, but, um, uh, but I do, I actually have, I'm working right now on a updated backyard pizza oven review um, as well as a review of uh, outdoor wok burners so a high output wok, wok burners if you have a backyard and you want to cook um certain wok dishes like they do in a restaurant um i'm reviewing sort of all the options you have there and making a recommendation on them so that that's, that'll be out uh on serious seats i don't know when this podcast is coming out but the the article should be up on august 25th so um yeah this will probably be early september so okay so it'll probably already be out by the time you read okay. by the time you hear this. now if they go to your website and you and sign up for your newsletter you'll you can explain you know when you got new things coming out of course yeah yeah i'm my my newsletter i i very very rarely send it out so you it's not going <laughs> to spam you with anything um so that's good you know you'll get a you'll get a notice when my when my kids book comes out so in a couple of weeks if you sign up for it, you'll get a notice when my kids book comes out you might get notices if i'm doing any if i'm working on any kind of exciting project um, but yeah, it's not like one of those things that's going to spam your inbox daily. It'll be you know, a couple yeah. times, a couple times a year at most is how, is how often it's uh, another, another email from Kenji, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like every day I got some of those. It's like, a, I don't even know how I got signed up for this one, but every day. Yeah. I mean, if, 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 if I'm on a list that's sending me something every day, it's, it's going to get straight. It's going straight to spam. <laughs> like I can't deal with that volume. <laughs> I understand that. Well, I want to thank you for being on. I know you got, uh, some other things you got going on today, but I really appreciate you taking the time and um you know talking with me today i think my followers are really going to like that but make sure you check out uh kenji lopez alt.com that's his website check out the youtube channel check out the uh worst hall if you're in the bay area uh, in california and san francisco and 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 all that um thanks again and also check out serious eats and there's a lot of a lot of information still on there that uh, I go back and back to all the time, especially the sous vide stuff. So, but thanks again for being on. Anything else you want to say? Or, um, no. Thank thank you so much for having me. This is a this is a nice call. Well, I appreciate you being on, and uh, thanks again. And I'll see you guys on the next Fire and Water Cooking podcast. All right. Bye bye. Well, thanks again for following us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Kenji one more time for being on. Make sure you check out the links below. Check out KenjiLopezAlt.com. Check out Serious Eats. 
make sure you check out his book on Amazon or on his website. But thanks again for following the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. Make sure you check us out on our Facebook page, Facebook group, YouTube channel. And I'll see you again on the next Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.